Particle would like to acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional owners of this land we record on, the Wadjuk people. We also acknowledge the role of Aboriginal people as the first scientists in Australia. Welcome to the Particle Podcast, where we talk about science and the people who just love it. I'm your host, Rose Kerr, and this season we're talking all things environmental. Today I am joined by Jessica Moran, PhD student who specialises in honeybee research. She stopped by to tell us all about the nuisance bees get up to and what we can learn from them. What do you actually do? Okay, so I'm a PhD candidate with the CRC for Honeybee Products at University of Western Australia within the Honeybee Health Research Group. Basically, that means I'm a massive bee nerd and I get to spend my days researching honeybees and ways to diagnose diseases faster. What kind of diseases do bees have? Bees actually get a lot of different diseases. So I focus on bacterial diseases, uh, American fowl brood, which is caused by the bacterium Panabacillus larvae in particular, but they're also prone to getting viruses. They get fungal infections. Um, There's a whole range of things. They get a lot of uh, parasites. I mean, you might know Varroa, the mite, and they also get plagued by moths. There's wax moths that get into the hive and eat the wax. I knew I didn't like moths. (laughs) So they get, um, they get pretty smashed up by a lot of different things. Yeah. And so you work on a specific disease? Yeah. So American fowl brood or AFB, as the beekeepers tend to call it. <laughs> as the people in the know. Yeah, call the it. people in the know. What does it actually do to the bees? It sounds quite horrific. Basically, the disease turns the baby bees into this gooey slime. Oh, no. Yeah. So they go from being healthy, white, happy larvae that look mm. like maggots in which... I mean, for people like me, that's like beautiful, love little maggoty bees, <laughs> but it turns them into this horrible brown ropey mess oh that no. it stinks. And that's, that's kind of where my research comes in. So because of this horrible smell that the disease creates, I've been looking at what chemicals or molecules are in that smell yeah. and then trying to develop sensors for those molecules so then we can sense when there's the disease in the hive. Wow and how did you know that it smelled was that because you can literally smell it as beekeepers? Yeah so you can smell it when it's a really bad infection they have trained sniffer dogs they actually put little dogs in suits Ah! bee suits and then they walk around the hives (laughs) trying to sniff out the disease. Like the ones like padded like yeah Wow. but the problem is as most beekeepers or as you can probably guess it's really hot so it's not particularly good for the dog and also the dog that was trained in Australia ended up getting a bit of a, an aversion to the hives because of the stings Aww, as well so fair enough that didn't really work oh my so goodness now we're looking at kind of replacing the dog with an electronic device yeah I mean far less cute yes but a lot more practical definitely and jumping in before we get too far into the bee chat Jess is mainly talking about honeybees specifically. They aren't native to Australia, but they were brought in by Europeans for honey, and now they've spread out in the environment. We have native bees in Australia, and we talk about them a little bit later on. When you're studying bees, what does that look like? Are you out near hives, or have you got bees in a lab? Yeah, so every day is kind of different, and I do a lot of... um a lot of 
wet lab work in the biology lab where I might be working with the disease or frames from a beehive, which mm. is kind of um, a big chunk of honeycomb that has baby bees in it that are deceased from the disease. Uh, or I might be working in the chemistry lab using a big mass spectrometer to look at the molecules in the air of the hive or I could be beekeeping mm. and some days I'll even be teaching or training people on how to look for the disease. Yeah, wow. And so that's been the project that's carried you all the way through your PhD. Do you feel like you're coming to answers? I am slowly. So I have been able to identify the biomarkers for the disease and that's something that we've been able to patent in Australia and now we're moving forward with trying to develop sensors for that. Yeah, that's which is exciting. Really exciting. Yeah. Oh, that must feel good to be doing that. Yeah. What inspired the research? Uh, it, it really came down to industry need. So industry has been dealing with this disease for a long time. Unfortunately, we don't have good statistics on how prevalent the disease is in industry because it's... It's got a weird stigma around the disease where beekeepers don't want to talk about it and they don't want to admit when they get the disease either because for a long time it was considered to be a management disease where oh. you're a bad beekeeper if you get this disease. And we're trying really hard to change that perspective to you're not a bad beekeeper if you get the disease, you're only a bad beekeeper if you do nothing about it mm. and you don't report it. But the beekeepers are struggling with the disease more and more. We know that it seems like there's more of the disease around and with pollination services increasing. So that's where farmers are hiring beehives to go and oh. spend time at their at their orchard or at their crop to then do pollination services. Yeah. When we have lots of hives coming together, so for example, I think it was last year, 200 beekeepers or 100 beekeepers took 200,000 hives or something similar to that ended up in um, the almond orchards in Victoria. But that's heaps of hives that aren't really being checked for disease. Only about 10% mm. of those hives will be checked for disease before yeah. they make it into the orchard. So it's a bit like going to a really busy nightclub during COVID. <laughs> yeah. You don't know what you're going to get. You could end up passing on that disease. You could catch that disease. Yeah. So it's quite dangerous. So we need to have better systems in place so we can speed up that checking process. Have you always worked with bees during your career? I actually started off doing... A bunch of random things so when I was an undergraduate I was just looking for any experience in research that I could get so I started off working with trapdoor spiders I was what? doing surveys for Dr Leander Mason uh, at the time she was a PhD student and she was uh, looking after a lot of my gallimorph spiders that were around WA and trying to find more in remnant bushland and then I started doing some um, some work in Dr. Renee Furman's lab where she was looking at the evolution of the mammalian baculum, which is the penis bone. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So I did a lot of work on evolutionary biology and sexual selection. And then doing that, I kind of, I was between projects and I was just looking for more things to do. And someone at the Centre for Integrative Bee Research at the time needed help. Mm. And I ended up volunteering with cyber. And Professor Boris Bear used to say, if you look too close at the bees, you get addicted. Oh. And that's exactly what happened. <laughs> and they just couldn't get rid of me after that. So I ended up doing my honours there on sperm in honeybees. <laughs> that is like so weirdly specific. <laughs> yeah. but I love it. It's incredibly specific. I have so many fun facts about bee sperm. Yes. I'm like the life of the party. <laughs> <laughs> How do people react if you're like going out for drinks or going to a party like, I work with bees? Do they just assume you're a beekeeper straight up? 
I get a lot of conspiracy theories. Oh, bees? <laughs> yeah, so there's there's a lot of people that are all about saving the bees with a capital T. Ah, yes. Um, <laughs> and they tend to come at me really hard with things like, oh, 5G's killing off all of the bees. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, what's happening with COVID and the bees. Oh, my goodness, <laughs> like, I did not know that. A lot of random things. People care deeply about honeybees <laughs> and they just really want me to know when I go out to a party. Wow, like you don't, you're not already caring. Like, no, <laughs> yeah. I definitely don't already care about them. Yeah, it's it's one of those topics where it's interesting because everybody knows something about it mm. and then they really want to tell you how much they know. <laughs> yeah, is it usually like, I watched the bee movie, I was inspired, I love bees now? Yes, and then you cringe because the bee movie is awful and horribly inaccurate (laughs) well yeah well I got I think I was telling someone about the bee movie I was like you know what bothers me about the bee movie it's not that the bee and the woman fall in love it's that all the worker bees are male and they're female right yes definitely oh (laughs) terrible yeah so male bees or drones uh they're only in the hive in certain periods of the year so they're only around usually during the summer months and a bit of spring and autumn and they don't really have a great life basically what happens is they are made basically to fulfill fulfill the role of carrying on the genetic material so <laughs> their job is to just sit in the hive and wait for a virgin queen to go flying past <laughs> if they like then they'll go and fly off and mate with her in the air they they mate in the air wow if they're lucky then they'll mate with a queen and they die during the process. Whoa! Yeah, it's quite explosive, literally. (laughs) But if they don't do that, then they kind of just keep hanging out in the hive and eventually when it gets cold and resources are scarce, the workers kick them out of the hive, dragging them kicking and screaming (gasps) and actually bite their wings off and sentence them to death. That would have 100% changed the bee movie. Yeah, yeah, definitely. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't have the same ring to it for kids. That's fun though to bring to a party. like that I would 100% talk to you at a party if that was the topic I was gonna get for you did you always because I'm thinking about the trapdoor spiders and like all the bees have you always been comfortable with insects because I don't know if I could handle trapdoor spiders as a study subject look I was I was pretty nervous taking on the role of doing things with spiders I mean I don't love spiders or have an affinity for them or anything like that but I learned pretty early on trying to get volunteering experience or just any kind of research experience you just have to say yes Mm. if there's someone that needs help you just do it (laughs) so I mean I spent a lot of time washing out dirty used mouse cages and things like that so then the spiders and searching for spiders felt like a step up in some ways that's true but the spiders were pretty awesome in the end and a lot of the time I wasn't looking for actual spiders I was looking for these little um like basically trapdoors in the ground that the spiders are hiding behind so they really build them and then live underneath them yeah yeah so so there's um there's a whole heap of species in WA and some of them you'll see like a, a 50 cent or 20 cent piece sized circle that's on the ground and then there'll be lots of leaves around it and it looks kind of ornamental mm. and then you might poke it and then suddenly it flies open and there's a spider trying to grab oh, you. No. You knocked on the little front door. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know what to stay away from them in that case. <laughs> With all those kind of gruelling kind of volunteering to, you know, help in different projects and cleaning out cages and things, was there ever a point where you wanted to just throw in the towel and give up? I don't think so. That's good. I was 
too intrigued by the final product. So, mm. I mean, I was really curious about what the results of the spider surveys would be. I mean, as much as some days it was horrible and hot and you'd walk through all these golden orb webs and just get covered in spider webs and dirt and ticks as well. Oh, There's ticks yuck. in everything. Ticks in beekeeping. Yeah, is really? really? Yeah. But through it all, you just the goal is the the end point and that's what keeps you going yeah that's really interesting and along those lines have you always loved nature yeah i think i have i um i grew up on a a cattle farm in the southwest of wa and i just i always loved being outside as a kid i was this feral child that was barefoot and probably in ragged clothes (laughs) that looked like it needed a bath Um, and I just never wanted to go inside I always wanted to be outside and then as I kind of went through high school I just really got interested in science and how things worked and why they worked the way they did and that really drove me to go into uni and kind of stay stay in science even if I, I thought about doing other things I just always ended up coming back to science. What was the job or like maybe it was volunteering I'm not sure that you kind of had before the science or that maybe got you through uni was there anything you did that was different not really I mean I had like a brief stint in hospitality (laughs) very early on but then I managed to get after a lot of volunteering and just kind of living off the few bucks I had through Centrelink and then I found some um, paid uh, paid research work and I was you know cleaning out mouse cages for a lot of my degree oh I mean that's still that's got to be up there with cleaning coffee cups yeah cages (laughs) tomato tomato yeah (laughs) what's it like to work with bees do they have personality oh there's definitely angry hives (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting because, as I said, you just look too close and you just get totally absorbed in what they're doing. I mean, it's just kind of magic when you open a hive and then you might take out one of the segments or a frame and then there'll be this gap and they try to fill it and then they hold hands while they're trying to fill it and you just fall in love instantly and you can't look away. And, yeah, I mean, obviously it's not so fun when they're angry. Does that happen often, that they're angry? um, It can do. It seems like there's some kind of interaction as well with the nutrition. So if they're on some floral-based, like um, capeweed, that seems to be pretty high in protein. Then Ah. the venom seems to hurt a lot more. Have you been stung a lot? Regularly enough. I mean, (laughs) it's almost safer. It seems within the group we'd like to get stung more regularly rather than infrequently because... If you're only getting stung once a year, then it seems like the sting feels worse or yeah, that seems to be yeah. something. The beekeepers call it beekeeper's wife syndrome, where they, the wives often develop allergies because they're hardly ever around. It is a very male-dominated yeah. field. So the wives are hardly ever around and then they get stung once a, every year and then oh. they end up getting allergic. Thank God you're not allergic, I assume. No, so I'm fine. I I had my field experiment last year where I was getting stung maybe once a week and that seemed to be okay. Yeah, thank goodness. But, I mean, after a while, if you're getting stung regularly enough, you don't even react to it anymore. That's the goal, right? Yeah, I mean, for a while there I had, like, ballooning hands and things. But, yeah, now I'm not so bad. (laughs) Would you ever keep your own hives? I would if I could. Unfortunately, I'm in a small townhouse with not really a a backyard or I have the pool so yeah that would be a bit of a problem with bees going swimming 
Actually, on that thought, I'm going to jump across to some of the questions from the rest of the Particle team. We've already done one, which is about the bee movie, but I was thinking about you have an adorable dog, (laughs) an adorable dog, Winston. Shout out to Winston. Adorable. (laughs) But why do dogs seem to dislike bees? Is it just inherent because of the stinging? I have no idea. It it must be because of the stinging. I mean... They, maybe they're just the spicy flies. Yeah. They don't seem to like the flies. And then, yeah, by accident. I mean, we've all seen the pictures on the internet of the dogs looking very foolish with blown up faces from eating spicy flies. Oh. <laughs> How do bees breathe? Breathing. Okay, so insects have little holes in their body that basically the air moves through it and then they're called um, spiracles, I think. It rings a bell for me. <laughs> oh, I'm going back to Bees 101. <laughs> Basically, there's holes in their body and then the air flows through that and that diffuses through the skin. So they don't really have lungs as oh. we do. They've just got kind of Swiss cheese bodies. Yeah, yeah. That's. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of yuck. <laughs> do you get a lot of bee-themed gifts? Oh, my gosh. So many bee-themed gifts. Do you have favourites? I can't pick and choose. <laughs> but... The kitschy bee stuff does come with the territory, for sure. I'd like to point out that Jess is wearing a skirt with bees on it today. <laughs> yes, this was uh, self-selected. This yeah, good. Was, yeah. yeah, do a you feel yourself good? Do you feel yourself drawn to bee-related items? A little bit. I mean, I like to have a few skirts and dresses that are bee-themed on hand for conferences and things like today. Do you find it quite... Because as we've talked about, people love the bees... Do you find at conferences and things people are generally interested in bee research? Yeah, definitely. I think the the bee industry, they're always really interested to see what we're doing. They, they like to keep us on our toes as well, asking mm. how long until we deliver certain tools and how is this applied research. But they're always really interested in the more blue sky science as well, particularly with things like the genetic diversity and looking at... Um, the, the breeding behaviours of some of the other species of bees as well. Yeah, because you would work with honeybees. Yes. Do you have much to do with native bees as well? Yeah, I haven't really done anything with native bees. I I was lucky enough when I was with the Centre for Integrative Bee Research to go over to Panama on a different project, but working on ants, the leafcutter ants, which is so cool. awesome. And I got to have a look at a lot of the native to Panama bees over there that were a lot of the little stingless ones that are absolutely adorable. Um, And that really got me interested in native bees in Australia as well. So when I came home, I started looking around. And unfortunately in WA, we are too – I think it were too dry down here. Yeah, okay. Down in Perth. But if you're over east and particularly in Queensland, then you could definitely have a hive of native bees, which is pretty cool. cool. Um, in WA, I love the, the burrowing bees and the blue-banded bees are particularly adorable. When you're working with uh, bees in like a big hive, are there little subtle differences between the bees in the hive or do they all look exactly the same? There's differences depending on the age of the bee. Oh. So it's incredibly adorable and you you just kind of want to hug them. The baby bees are really fluffy (laughs) (laughs) and they can't sting either. So you can have them all over your hands and they're just a bit dopey and they're not really sure. They can't fly, so they'll just crawl all over you and they're super fluffy and adorable. The older they are, the the more jobs that they've done and they go out of the hive and they move their body against things and slowly they get less fluffy and and sometimes they look a a little bit mangled because they've been in... Banksia often takes a lot of the fluff off and then they can look almost smooth and shiny. 
shiny and they can be kind of scary looking and we sometimes get beekeepers calling up saying there's something wrong with the bees they look like they have a disease have you been on the banks here oh really that's often the case huh that's so interesting i suppose because they're not adapted to our plants they wouldn't necessarily have adapted to protect themselves in any way yeah definitely so honeybees obviously are introduced to australia and I don't know, we have a lot of um, interesting discussions with people that want to save the bees. And I think that Australia is involved in that, not really by choice, but honeybees being an agricultural species here. But because we have one of the healthiest populations of honeybees in the world, we're kind Mm. of stuck with that. But they are quite cheeky when it comes to our native flora. So they often cut corners. So instead of pollinating things properly going in the route that maybe the plant has evolved for bird pollination sometimes they'll go down to the base of the flower and cut a hole in and then basically rob the nectar out and then that flower is no longer that attractive to birds and things that would actually go down the the, um, opening of the flower and get that pollination going so they can be a bit naughty yeah no kidding that's cheating the system exactly why do we bring in honeybees instead of just using like tons of native bees to do the same job yeah so that's a good question it's to do with efficiency so honeybees they're probably the most easy to manage being able to have a hive that will have about 60,000 80,000 bees in it is a lot more efficient than trying to manage these native bees where a lot of our native bees are solitary as well yeah okay Um, and the ones that aren't that are social living they are a lot smaller and we don't know a lot about their biology so there is a bit of a push now to start recognizing more native pollinators Mm. and start bringing that into a commercial sense but the honeybee is the kind of tried and tested we know everything about their biology and there is that industry there already that's really developing ways on managing the hives and there's all of the infrastructure set up around managing the hives yeah that's the thing you already know so much about them yeah when they were introduced to Australia, is it generally accepted that it was successful and aside from the cheating the system and tapping out some of the nectar, is it generally accepted that they didn't disrupt the ecosystem too much or did they cause some issues? Yeah, I mean, a lot of that, it's kind of a grey area. There's, it's quite controversial. So some some researchers will say that, oh, they haven't had too much of an effect and maybe they're increasing pollination, so then there's more plants coming through. Whereas we do know that they displace bird species, like the carnaby's cockatoo, they'll often take up roost in... Um, the bees will take over their nesting sites and then kind of push them out. So I think... When we consider honeybees in the Australian landscape, personally, I think that we need to consider them as an agricultural species. Mm. They're not something that should be found in forests and things like that. We are lucky in a lot of ways that we have this healthy honeybee population for pollination and that we have kind of this stewardship role in looking after the honeybee population as a kind of world um, responsibility, I guess. But... Yeah, there's definitely concerns there for our native flora. But in a lot of ways, our beekeeping industry also works really hard to protect the forests as well because mm. obviously we have a lot of value in the monofloral honeys from, say, the Jarrah Forest. So the beekeepers are actually one of the biggest lobbyists to stop um, the logging and 
the forestry services from cutting down too much of our remnant forests. Huh. I never thought about the way it would interact with so many different industries. Yeah. Going back to the question that you asked earlier about why honeybees, Yeah. Uh, I remembered that so honeybees have what's called uh, floral constancy, I think it's called. So basically when the bees fly out of the hive and then they'll find a, a nectar resource or a pollen resource, they'll continue going back to that species, that plant, until it's um, the resource is gone. So oh. that's why they're particularly good at doing pollination services because if they're going after avocados, then they'll keep going for avocados rather than oh. straying off and kind of going into the weeds. I mean, this is often why we see monocultures without any weeds because they can get distracted and then just go for the weeds, yeah. which can be a problem as well. But they're very good and efficient pollinators for oh. crop species. Yeah, that's really interesting. I wonder... I wonder why evolutionary-wise they would have done that, decided to go, you know what, we'll just take all of this one particular one instead of going for everything. Yeah, I'm not sure. It's incredibly interesting. Do you eat honey? I do. And do you have a favourite, like, you know how you can get, like, Jarrah honey or you can get wildflower Mm. honey? Do you have a favourite one you've gotten? I really like white gum honey. Why does it taste different? It's all about what's in the nectar. So you you might have um, peppermint honey from the peppermint trees, Agonis flexuriana, I think. I mean, you did botany. It is, yeah. Excellent. (laughs) Good guess. I'm a fake botanist. (laughs) And that would taste kind of pepperminty because of the nectar. That's not something the beekeepers add to it or the bees do. That's all to do with the nectar. So the bees obviously turn it into honey, but the underlying taste definitely comes from that plant. So does that mean you have picked up a bit of botany along the way because of that yeah it's it's funny that you asked that we I think when I first started my PhD I did get grilled by one of the beekeepers at an event and they pointed outside the window and they were like name that tree name that tree and I said excuse me yeah if you're going to be in beekeeping you need to know some botany wow (laughs) did you take that on board did you have to was that that right definitely I mean we try yeah Um, I mean you could just work with a botanist. You could just outsource. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I did zoology, so I'm not the best at botany, but you definitely try to pick things up, like looking around and being able to identify bottle brush not from the flower but from the leaves and yeah. that kind of thing and trying to learn some of the names. But it is one of the problems that we have in the honey industry as well with trying to get people to say what um, what floral resource they were on because there's so many common names that get used. Oh, and yeah. then with all of the taxonomic revisions, people often say, oh, I was on the wandu. Like, yeah, okay. What does that even mean yeah. anymore? There's so many different species that's been on these taxonomic revisions. So mm. that's been one of the challenges for looking at honey traceability and trying to figure out what honey um, mono floral crop you have wow because the beekeepers have all of these different names for things like parrot bush and oh that's that banksia that makes honey that tastes really bad (laughs) they all know what they're talking about it's it's like csi honey exactly trace it all back yes why would you ever need to trace back where someone's honey originally came from or where the bees were pollinating So part of that is to do with adding value to the industry because we know that there are some honeys like Jarrah that are worth a lot more than other honeys. So at the moment there's a big push in the industry to be able to put some honey in and say, okay, the beekeeper says this is Jarrah. Can we confirm that this is Jarrah honey? And then people can ask the right price for it. The other thing potentially would be for tracing disease outbreaks. So Mm. if we find that a honey sample has spores of the bacteria, then we could go back to that apiary or that beekeeper and say, hey, look, we need to investigate this further. 
What are some unexpected challenges of your research? Definitely going back to the the earlier um, statement I made about the disease that I work on having a stigma around it. Mm. In the beginning of my PhD, it was really difficult to actually get samples of the disease because people weren't even reporting it to the ag department, which is a legal requirement for having bees Mm. and this disease. That was definitely really challenging, trying to move through that and build a relationship with the beekeepers and say that I'm a trustworthy person and I'm not going to grill you or say that, you know, you're a bad beekeeper because that's not at all the case. Yeah. That was definitely really challenging. In terms of PhD life, it's kind of like chronic stress and fatigue. (laughs) For years. Yeah. So, and I think with academic precarity as well, we're racing towards a finish line, but we have no idea what's at the end of that finish line if there's a job. Oh, that's rough. (laughs) When you're talking to the beekeepers, how did you go about forming that trust? Was it just lots of conversations? Like how did it work? Yeah, I think part of it was I was really lucky in being in the Centre for Integrative Bee Research. Cyber had a really good working relationship with the beekeepers and our apiary manager, who actually manages the hives at SciTech, I think, Tiffany Bates. She was instrumental in being able to make these relationships and just get my face out there. Going to conferences helped. Mm. Just being persistent, really, and volunteering my time at the Royal Show and other bee industry events where I could just stand there and talk to the public about bees and try to help the industry. Do you like doing that stuff? I do, actually. It's it's exhausting um, and we do get a lot of questions from a lot of children and parents about bees and you just feel like you're kind of repeating yourself a lot but it is rewarding being able to pass that on and it's always interesting to hear what kind of questions people have and what what they know as well yeah what do you find people know most about bees a lot of people are starting to become aware of the pollination yeah cool so that's been really nice to see in the last couple of years Mm. that people are being able to put kind of figures on oh yeah they they pollinate um say 35 of our crop species in Australia or oh yeah I heard that bees contribute 14 billion dollars to the economy every year things like that it's kind of nice to be hearing that information back rather than just saying it Um, but people are always really interested to hear about bee sex so it's my time to shine (laughs) you're like it's in the air there's explosions (laughs) it's amazing (laughs) sit down strap yourself in (laughs) do you often see it out and about no not really yeah okay if you're lucky, then you might... Oh, okay. So there's this researcher called Dr. Ben Oldroyd uh, in Sydney, University of Sydney. He likes to say that the B-boys are typical blokes and like to hang out at ovals, <laughs> football ovals in particular. So for some reason, you can often find these little swarms, I guess, of the boys. They're called congregation areas where the drones just hang out and wait for the queen to fly through. Yeah, okay. And for some reason, they're often at football (laughs) levels. (laughs) It's kind of great. What's something unexpected that you've learnt through your career? Unexpected? I guess resilience. It's just a, a skill. I didn't really expect to have to be so resilient in science, but it's definitely a lot of perseverance and kind of you feel like you might be headbutting the wall a lot of the time and then you'll get a breakthrough and thankfully that's rewarding enough that you kind of have to remind yourself of that next time you feel like you've come to a roadblock. Do you have any strategies for dealing with that kind of I don't know feeling dejected that you couldn't get the results you wanted? I mean it's 
it's rarely about getting the results you wanted. Mm. It's it's more about oh, particularly working with bees. Fieldwork can be a nightmare. Yeah. Sometimes the bees, just like working with any kind of animal, they they won't do what you want them to do. So even when I was doing a field experiment on my disease, some of the bees just wouldn't get sick. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, I swear this is a problem for you. Why do you not have it? You're just like, come on, stop being so hygienic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's always an interesting learning curve. Yeah. Is there, do you have like, I don't know, do you have to take a step away at that point or do you, I don't know, distract yourself? Like what do you normally do? I think I really rely on my research group. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for us, no bee researcher is an island. Mm. We really rely on each other and a lot of that motivation and just the final push can come from the rest of the the group that I'm in. They're incredibly helpful with feedback but also just motivation. Did you always want to do a PhD? Oh, it's... It's kind of come down to personal motivation. I came from quite an academic family. So my dad was a doctor and he was a, well, a fish doctor, I should say. He worked for the Department of Primary Industries in Department of Fisheries for a long time. So I kind of knew that that was a career path that I could potentially take. But as I started off my undergraduate, I was really keen to do it and then after I did my honours less keen I kind of was a bit worried about the academic situation and the lifestyle in particular there's a lot of precarity with job opportunities and living kind of contract to contract and it seemed quite high stress so I mean there's definitely positives and negatives being called doctor is also a nice positive (laughs) big positive (laughs) but yeah it's it's all about kind of I guess sacrificing part of the lifestyle in order to get that that drive of the research and you just kind of get addicted to answering questions and asking questions in particular I mean I'm definitely learning every day I think that's something that people don't really expect when they go into a PhD is how much you end up googling (laughs) (laughs) just constantly googling it's kind of reassuring as someone that googles a lot of things oh yeah that's definitely the way (laughs) and so do you feel like you're more or less kind of anxious about the whole being an academic thing uh, now compared to at the start or is it still very much just still there the concern oh I mean the concern is definitely there mm. like, it's it's hard to get away from it we we definitely see kind of what it does to colleagues and seeing higher-ups and everybody always looks stressed particularly around grant application time about whether or not you'll still have funding there's fewer and fewer grants that are available every year so there's a a large proportion of PhD students that are turning to industry and the private sector once they graduate fewer and fewer are actually managing to stay in academia Mm. but I think there will always be opportunities for you after getting a PhD because it's it's less about being an expert in one small area but gaining a lot of transferable skills yeah okay What's something that could improve in the bee industry outside of, you know, managing the diseases in terms of from an environmental standpoint? I think we have an interesting situation in Australia where beekeeping, beekeeping is always difficult, but in Australia we have it relatively easy. So we don't have the varroa mite and 
that makes beekeeping here incredibly easy compared to elsewhere. I was in Germany a couple of years ago and my friend Ori was showing me his hives and it just the the process that they have to go through to constantly be treating for varroa was really mm. interesting. It just seemed so foreign to me having to constantly be managing a hive to keep it alive, basically. And we make honey so easily here. So with the ease of beekeeping, I think that it's quite attractive to people that don't really know what they're doing. Mm. And we have had an explosion of hobbyists come into the industry. And that's awesome that people are interested in bees, but it's it was described to me once as they feel like they've bought a goldfish, like mm. a pet to have, yeah. and they don't really realise that now they're a part of this bigger picture of biosecurity and global bee health. So I guess making people understand the, the regulations and the rules, particularly around being a hobbyist or just being a beekeeper in general in Australia is really important. As soon as you get bees, you are required to register with the Ag Department. So then if something goes wrong, if there's an incursion, the Ag Department can contact you and also they can do inspections to check that you're not just dumping the hives somewhere, forgetting about them and breeding disease. Part of the problem as well is that hobbyists often are undereducated or they think that they've got it but they don't really know enough and we try to set them up with the um, APRS associations that are around just for the training and basic kind of know-how but sometimes there are hobbyists that might get a hive and then they think it's too difficult so the hive will sit there and then they'll get an infection of the disease and particularly for the disease that I work on, if the hive then dies, other hives in the area, bees are quite sneaky, they'll come and try and rob the honey, oh. but that can be laden with spores. So that's a really bad incidence where the disease can spread quite quickly. What are you gonna do when you're finished with your PhD? I am actually getting excited about that. So the Honeybee Health Research Group, I've been a part of it since it first began. And I'm really excited to help build that group into something more. So at the moment, we're in a lot of discussions about trying to create more of a space for training and teaching and doing a lot of the sideline things like um, doing seminars on disease and more beekeeping courses. So there's a whole bunch of things that aren't really academic, but more service for industry that I'm really interested in doing. And I look forward to hopefully having a postdoc that maybe I can do part-time while also helping our Honeybee Health Research Group grow. How long have you got left? I have another year of funding, but I'll probably continue on beyond that. Most PhD students end up doing some time that's unpaid, which can be a good motivator to finish. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I was going to say, yeah, how do you kind of I guess you're so close to the end, you just keep going. But is it a hard thing to convince yourself at that point it's worth it and go, you know, without funding and do it on off your own back? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's pretty common for PhD students to have what's called the second year blues mm. where you just feel like there's so so much to kind of push up that mountain and finally get it wrapped up. But at the end of the day, a lot of PhD students managed to kind of push past that and then it's this final rush I mean you do spend a lot of time in your pyjamas just sitting at the computer and smashing it out yeah it it is exhausting it's definitely not something that's easy but it's rewarding as well and I mean unless you write up the research you've done 
then no one will ever know about it yeah. and it won't matter. Yeah. So it feels like there's this huge need for the science communication part of it. Mm, that's something we've talked about a few times is why so many scientists do choose to go into science communication and maybe that's a part of it is just because you've done all this work. You probably want to share it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you if you sit in a lab and you do the work, you haven't actually done the work because no one knows about it. Mm. You have to still write it up. And even if you write it up, people might not read it. So you need to do a good job of writing it up and getting it out there. Otherwise, you still haven't really done it in the eyes of the world. And especially with your research, I imagine it's mainly the stuff that will matter most is when it goes out to the beekeepers and it gets put in practice. Yeah, so that's a really exciting and terrifying part of my project, I guess. I mean, my my whole project has been about trying to work towards this beehive breathalyzer and I managed to get, I guess, the, the groundwork laid where I've identified these biomarkers and now we're looking at the sensors and that's part of the next phase of my project is looking at sensors to actually look for these biomarkers. But we've also managed to get um, a big grant from AgriFutures Australia to take that to the next level and be able to make sensors specifically for some of these biomarkers. That's so so cool. that's something else that's in the pipeline. Would they be literally like tiny little little breathalysers you have to hold up next to their like <laughs> body holes? <laughs> I'm picturing something more like a regular human-sized one that we'll probably have where the... Um, the tube will go in the door of the oh, hive yeah, okay. <laughs> and collect up the beehive air. I'm picturing them all lining up. It's a lot quicker, I think, your way. And to finish up with, after you said you had so many fun, uh, fun facts, I do desperately want to hear one. Oh, okay. Uh, my top favourite fact would have to be that bee sperm is about four times longer than human sperm. Wait, what? How? Yeah. And why? <laughs> why? Why should it be? Yeah, so that's a really good question and we're still trying to figure out no! the why. Insects often have ridiculously long sperm and there's a lot of theories that it has to do with sperm competition. So when a honeybee goes out on, they call it the nuptial flight, and it's basically <laughs> a, a flight of passion, she can make with up to 90 drones just in quick succession leaving this little trail of dead exploded bodies <laughs> and then she'll only accept about three percent three percent of that sperm wow so there's this massive sperm competition that must go on in yeah. her internals so even though the drones die immediately during copulation she'll actually store that sperm for the rest of her life and that can be up to seven years Whoa. so the sperm will definitely outlive their their maker wow and uh honeybees are incredibly efficient at fertilizing their eggs as well so yeah. if you think about how many sperm a human male will throw at a single egg <laughs> and still not great chance of yep. getting pregnant a bee will actually use one or two sperm per egg in fertilization that and she so actually successful it's incredible and she actually controls whether or not to fertilize that egg so she can lay unfertilized eggs, which are the drones, the boys. It's only the workers that are made from fertilized eggs. I don't understand. Like, they're so little. Like, how are they? Like, their little bodies are storing it all. Yeah. So she has this, it's a special organ called a spermatheca. It's basically <laughs> like a sperm pocket wow. where she just keeps all of the sperm. And it's her little pouch where she just plucks the sperm when she needs them. Oh, the queens are amazing. Yeah. They're also... Um, they're incredibly vicious towards one, one another. Really? So 
if a hive feels like it needs to make another queen, say that the the previous queen might have gotten really old, uh, she might have run out of sperm. That's something that can happen as well. Oh. So then she might only be laying boys. Yeah. The bees have an opportunity to make new queens and they do that by basically taking a really young worker larvae and then they will feed that larvae extra royal jelly and then through epigenetics it will turn into a queen Mm. to hedge their bets they don't want to just make one queen they often make a couple so they'll make a couple of queens the queens will then hatch and then when they hatch they actually do what's called piping where they make this kind of like beep, 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 beep noise and then that lures out the other queen and then they fight to the death. Whoa. <laughs> and the winner is then the queen of that hive. It's like Game of Thrones within it's a hive. It's so Game of, Th- Game of Drones. <laughs> You've thought about this before. I have. I definitely have. <laughs> what, how does the old queen, what does the old queen think about it? Yeah, she gets knocked off. Yeah. yeah. Would they wait until they get a new one before they kill off the old queen? Yeah, so often it'll be the new queen that kills off the old queen. They'll do that piping. Oh, that's amazing. It's, yeah, it's an incredible world. (laughs) I could, yeah. I can see how you'd get fascinated and watch that just forever. Easy. (laughs) Thank you so much for being on today, Jess. No worries. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Particle Podcast. You can find more of our content on all of the socials as well as at particle.scitech.org.au. Particle is powered by SciTech and everything we make is made in the wonderful science hub of Western Australia on Wadjuk country. 